Sometimes they say he doesn't act presidential. Is Trump destroying civic norms? When he gets on Twitter and degrades the office of the presidency. With the exception of the late, great Abraham Lincoln. And this is humiliating for our country. I can be more presidential than any president that's ever held this office, that I can tell you. He seems confused. This is the president of the United States. You don't do things like that. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. Heather, this week we wanted to look at the long-term damage President Trump may be causing our country, our government, our civic norms. A lot of people on both sides of the aisle are worrying. It seems like more and more are coming forth. We've heard from Republican Senators Ben Sass, John McCain, Jeff Flake, who was on this show. Trump's own Secretary of State refused to deny reports that he called the president a bleeping moron. But one who is at the center of all the attention right now is the retiring Republican senator from Tennessee, Bob Corker. Last week, the senator, who has been critical of the president of the past, though he was an early and key supporter, said this. I, I think uh, Secretary Tillerson, Secretary Mattis, and uh, Chief of Staff Kelly uh, are those people that help separate our country from chaos. And uh, I uh, support them very much. Of course, this puts a Twitter target on Corker's back, and Trump is firing with impunity. Corker's criticism, though, seems to be different, seems to be breaking through, not just because he warns President Trump is putting us, quote, on a path to World War III, but because he is warning that Trump is uniquely dangerous, perilous in ways we have not seen to America, its way of life, its system of government, and the wider world. That perhaps is a case, this moment is a case, where he just is unfit for the presidency. Corker told the New York Times, I know for a fact that every single day in the White House, it's a situation of trying to contain him. It makes me think that when President Trump leaves office, and yes, at some point he will leave office, what kind of lasting harm will his presidency have done to the office itself, to our form of government, to the nation beyond Washington. Heather, what are you thinking as you watch this moment when many folks in Washington of both parties are talking a bit more like we talk each week on this show about lasting dangers and about how this system is built to correct for many, many instances, but maybe not this one. Well, listen, we are right now in a perilous time for sure. And there are so many balls in the air, it's very difficult to keep your eye on anyone at any time. And Americans are getting exhausted by that, you know, bouncing from one thing to another. And we have a lot of wild cards out there. You know, I focus largely on domestic politics, but you look at what is happening in the wider world and you think, you know, if there is, God forbid, some sort of a nuclear event, that's going to throw all the cards up in the air and we have to start again from square one. 
one. So there's a lot going on right now that's very frightening and very dangerous. But I have said, and I believe it now even more so, that America right now is walking on a knife edge. And it has been now for a while. This is not brand new. And it's a knife edge that could take us to the end of America or to the renewal of American democracy in a really healthy, exciting way. And we have been in a place in the past, much like where we are now. We look very much like the 1850s, right before the Civil War, in the 1890s, during the Gilded Age, and in the 1920s, in uh, what were known as the Roaring Twenties. We had times when the country was bitterly divided, when there, the government was run by people with uh, a great deal of money who simply wanted to stay in control and stay in power and were happy to divide voters in order to get there. And in each of those moments, we got the rise of a younger politician in the 1850s, it was Abraham Lincoln, a young lawyer who looked at the country and said, you know, this is not my government when it's being run exclusively by people who are trying to promote slavery and the extraordinary wealth that slavery is moving upward in society. In the 1890s, it was Teddy Roosevelt, who was a Republican in the mold of Abraham Lincoln and who was horrified by the fact the Republican Party had been taken over by what were known as robber barons. And in the 1920s, it was uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he was a Democrat who was not part of the Republican Party that was running the country during the 1920s. But he as well felt was a very wealthy man and felt a sense of obligation to an America where certainly wealth was protected, but where people were not going to be in the night as they were in the 1930s, standing in bread lines or or hopping trains across the country looking for work because the system had been constructed in such a way that all the wealth had moved to the very top. And in each of those times, Americans came right up to the brink of oligarchy or fascism, and then they recovered their senses and they rebirthed a new form of progressive American government that took us into new and exciting and productive and prosperous times. So where are we right now? We might be in the end times or the beginning times, and maybe they're both the same thing. You know, I have to say, I am a bit overwhelmed, though, this week. I I literally... I would admit to being up at four in the morning this morning, and I I had banished my cell phone from the room, but I broke that rule, and I am now exhausted uh, from what I was reading. I mean, beyond Melania and Ivana fighting it out, North Korea, Bob Corker, I'm really now at the point where where this is almost to a precise form a reality show. I'm exhausted and fearful as the world spinning off its axis as... Ten things happen before the sun rises. It, it is not a sustainable situation right now. We are definitely moving towards some sort of a conclusion, a resolution, somehow a major change. And of course, we all think that the major change is going to be something dramatic happening around the White House. Look, for this show called Freak Out and Carry On, we have the ideal guests this morning. I mean, every day we do our freak out about the news of the week, and then we start to anchor ourselves in context as to the sweep of history, where we are now, what it means, where we're going. And for that, I can think of few people better to join us than Nora Morenstein, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a contributing editor at The Atlantic, uh, just uh, one of the Washington wise uh, folk. Uh, He's co-author with E.J. Dion and Thomas Mann of One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate 
and the not yet deported. Norm, not yet deported, uh, you're still here. Uh, who knows for how long. Uh, <laughs> if, uh, Of course, uh, one thing that's comforting to me is that I don't have to worry about President Trump reading this book. Yeah, well... Uh, he doesn't read. <laughs> yes, okay. Okay, look, you agree with Corker, Norm, uh, and apparently many other off-the-record and increasingly on-the-record Republicans that Trump is uniquely dangerous. Uh, frame exactly why you see him as uniquely dangerous. Well, uh, I'm at an age where I can be blunt, and I think it's been clear for some time whether it is a clinical diagnosis or not, and we know that the psychiatric community is divided on all of that, Donald Trump is a 71-year-old lifelong narcissistic sociopath. And if you put that together with everything that we've heard from the quite remarkable leaks from inside the White House about him, although I would say as an aside, it's a reflection of our times and not a very positive one, that Corker's colleagues are not doing much to support him publicly with this. They uh, basically put the need for tax cuts for the rich ahead of (laughs) the danger that he poses more generally. You could get tax cuts for the rich with Mike Pence as president. I mean, why is that the bargain? Uh, We want those tax cuts and we'll do anything to get them. Uh, well, look, we had we had Jeff Flake on the show the day after his book was published. We asked the same set of questions here. My, lonely, isn't it, Jeff? Now, here we have, X weeks later, uh, Bob Corker, you know, who is, is much more consequential in the Senate than Jeff Flake, chairman of foreign relations, a guy with yep. enormous goodwill on both sides of the aisle, in fact. Why is Corker also facing alone, screaming in the wind. What's it going to take for people to join a voice like Bob Corker? And, and what will it be that gets him some company here? I believe fundamentally that 95% of the Republicans in Congress, if they could snap their fingers and have Donald Trump simply disappear and make Mike Pence president without any adverse effects on them. Uh, They would do it in a nanosecond. But they're scared to death of that base, which is with Trump, which is a good share of their base. And to go after Trump means that you are going to alienate a significant portion of your own party base, but it also means you are going to be taking on not just President Trump, but the Mercers and other billionaires, uh, Sean Hannity, Uh, Tucker Carlson and that army in the right-wing tribal media who will stick with Trump and attack the others. I wonder, and maybe you can give us a little bit of insight on this, with the extraordinary damage that this Trump presidency has done to our State Department, to our regulatory agencies, to all the different parts of the American government, is there in fact a way back? Uh, yeah, there is a way back, but we have to recognize that the damage that we're seeing done is not going away for a very substantial period of time. You know, some of these actions that are being taken on the healthcare front, on the environmental front, the damage to the norms in many of these government agencies, 
the hollowing out of the diplomatic corps and all of those experienced in foreign policy at the top levels, the best and brightest that we've had by Secretary Tillerson, combined with the uh, attempts in places like EPA and Interior and many other departments to drive out some of the most senior managers, the inability to fill the positions with decent people to help run these agencies, these things are not going to be restored in the short run. And so we're digging a hole here that's going to be a deep one. And the, the big question is, will the walls around that hole collapse around all of us? Or are we going to be able to reconstruct them, get out of them over a period of time, and move back the way we have in the past? What is the end game of these guys? If, in fact, what the Republican Party under Trump is doing is so wildly unpopular, getting rid of health care, providing more tax cuts for the very wealthy, getting rid of any kind of environmental protections, these are increasing you know, the freedom of guns, which we know is also unpopular. What? Do, how do they think this is going to come out by taking the vote away from people so that they stay in power? Isn't that ultimately the destruction of American democracy in favor of an oligarchy that looks very much, say, like Vladimir Putin's? Uh, yes, and I'm very worried about that. And I think it may not just be like Putin's. I think uh, Trump's role model, or closer to it, is Erdogan in Turkey. It's gradually sort of tightening restrictions here and making sure that you can cling to power. Uh, now, I, I suspect for many of them, there is a sort of genuine, almost religious-like belief in the idea that if you cut government out of people's lives, freedom will emerge. There is nothing in reality that would suggest truth to any of these things. And, you know, it's, it's baffling and it's frightening at the same time. And when I see many of those I know well and respect personally, and that includes people like Flake, and it includes a Lindsey Graham, marching blindly forward, even with some words from time to time to suggest that they're uneasy about it, but then going along with trends and policies and justifying by their actions behavior that is unjustifiable, it's really, really distressing. Well, well, Norm, as someone who once ran campaigns before I became a journalist, I heard something I know you've heard, which is uh, issues divide, images unite. People mostly get elected not on the rational but on the emotive. And so much of what we're talking about are people who seem to be voting against their rational interests, driven, born, uh, incented by things that are... Uh, anything but rational, that are deeply emotive as to their identity, as to their feelings, as to what helps them get up in the morning. So uh, let's talk a little more about that after we take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Norm, here's a question. What actually are Trump voters expecting to get out of a Trump presidency? And I guess a question is, are they even expecting anything to be delivered to them? I think many of them are not. I think they say Trump is in a capital of the enemy nation, and we don't expect him to deliver much with those Visigoths on all sides. We just like what he is doing to represent our voice and to create just utter havoc in the notion 
of self-governance. What about that? Uh, I agree with you. And certainly we know that there is an enormous level of despair and frustration in rural America and in many ex-urban areas, in parts of the country and with people who believe that the elites have condescended to them. It's also the case that there's a, a widespread sense, and this goes way beyond even a lot of those people who voted for Trump, that government is filled with these politicians who are out to line their own pockets and don't care about the rest of us. And when Trump said, uh, what the hell have you got to lose, that did resonate with a lot of people. And the negative partisanship, the sense that the people on the other side are so evil, means that when he goes after them, people like it, even if they're not getting anything directly out of it. All right. I'm, I'm totally on board with you here. And I'm going to ask you to tell us more about the GI Bill, which you talk about in this book and is one of my favorites and was, of course, a bipartisan bill coming out of World War II. The Democrats and the Republicans disagreed about why there should be such a thing. And yet um, they agreed on it and passed it. And it changed America. Can you walk us through that? Cited, sure. cited yeah. as the domestic equivalent of the Marshall Plan. I mean, the most cited domestic policy, no doubt, is the GI Bill. So here we had, in the aftermath of World War II, and, and the divided country in many ways, you know, 1946, just to pick an example, Harry Truman is president, and he has to deal with a Republican Congress that he called the Do-Nothing Congress. That's the Congress that gave us the Marshall Plan. But we had this sense that we were going to renew our society, and all of these men, and the overwhelmingly men, coming back from the Second World War, we were going to give them a boost up. And the GI Bill not only created an educational opportunities for millions of people that probably had more to do with creating uh, uh, the right kind of workforce for the remainder of the 20th century, but they also gave people coming back some opportunity. My father-in-law who came back from Europe after the war was a member of what he called the 5220 Club, a part of the GI Bill, where you came back and you would get $20 a week for 52 weeks to get yourself on your feet again. This was enormously transformative. And we need to look at this again with a new kind of GI Bill, not for the men coming back from a war so much as for workers and families. And that has to be dedicated to finding a set of proposals, and many of them are out there, that can fulfill the social contract, first of all, that if you do what you're supposed to do, you get a job, you work hard, uh, you show up, you should be able to get a roof over your head, food on the table for your family, the ability to educate them, and maybe at least some work-family balance. But, but you know what? Let's think of that moment. That's a moment of crisis, but also a sacrifice of World War II that created the predicate for that bill. Is it possible now to get that kind of outcome, a bipartisan GI Bill, in the many flavors you've mentioned, without that sacrifice that's shared? I think we can get it without the shared sacrifice, but what it's going to take is a transformation of the parties, but especially at this point, the Republican Party. I don't suggest that Democrats are angels here or that they don't have their own challenges, including you know, moving uh, far enough away from the center that compromise becomes uh, impossible. But 
you know, we're hopeful in this book for this reason. Trump has jolted us in a way that, you know, the analogy I'm now using is he may be our Dunkirk, the civil society, and lots of people out there in different areas now understanding that we face a threat. And it's not just Donald Trump. If he goes away, we're still going to have enormous threats to the fabric of the society and the ability to prosper into the rest of the 21st century. If, in fact, you're right, and of course I want to think you're right, that um, that this is a moment when we could re- be reborn in a model much like Eisenhower or perhaps Teddy Roosevelt, although, believe me, we don't need another Teddy Roosevelt in the White House. Um, what did they say? They they ran, The printers used to complain that they ran out of the letter I every time he gave a speech. Um, uh, how do we do it? I mean, what what I look at is I see see everywhere a groundswell of people who feel profoundly left behind since 1980, who feel that the government has turned against them. And I see them disillusioned with their leaders, all of their leaders, and desperate for new voices who will offer the kind of patriotism that you are arguing for. And yet, you know, I mean, I don't know if you're planning to run for office, but, you know, we're kind of looking for a politician out there to do that. Is there somebody who will do that or is there some other way that the new media is going to be leveraged to create a groundswell that's going to create a new politics? What do you think? So I I do think it's going to have to come more from the bottom up than the top down. I don't know if given the nature of tribal media and the business models out there and the depth now of the tribalism, that we could have another figure like a Roosevelt or a Lincoln uh, emerging without being caught in the uh, crossfire of all of this. Is One that because of the media, you think? Because certainly we were as deeply divided in the 1850s, more so. People were shooting yeah. each other in Congress. And in the 1890s, uh, again, people were, were absolutely in the streets, 23,000 strikes between 1880 and 1890. We had all of that. And I would also, uh, I would argue that uh, if Huey Long hadn't been shot in the 1930s, he might well have emerged as a populist on the left or on the Democratic side who could have given Roosevelt uh, fits, Franklin Roosevelt fits. So, well, he certainly gave him fits anyway, but walk us through yeah. Huey Long, who was the subject of the very first history book I ever read. Ah. So I have a very, and I've yes. seen the, the bullet marks in the Louisiana State House. In the 1930s, of course, in the Depression, we had so many countries, Germany, Italy, and others, that turned to autocracy, to fascism. Um, And we think that we were immune from that. But we had forces on the right with Father Coughlin, on the left with Huey Long. We start from the bottom, that the 25 or more million American families shall have a homestead, a home, and the comforts of a home, including an automobile and a radio, the things it takes in that house to live on. America will become a land sharing the fruits of the land, not for the favored few, not to satisfy greed, but that all may live in a land in which the Lord has provided an abundance sufficient for the luxury and convenience of the people in general, I think. Emerging, taking some of the same themes that we saw with Donald Trump, uh, not coming from billionaires, but for Huey Long, it really was the working people against the elites. 
and a very dangerous man who was assassinated on the steps of the Capitol uh, in Louisiana, but who was uh, who had a significant amount of popularity around the time that we had 25% or more unemployment. Well, Norm, you're, you're absolutely right about the 1930s and about how we almost went in the direction of Europe and toward fascism with figures like Father Coughlin pressuring FDR on the right. You know, Father Coughlin was this anti-Semitic Catholic priest who had a radio show that was enormously popular. We are Christian in so far as we believe in Christ's principle of love your neighbor as yourself. And with that principle, I challenge every Jew in this nation to tell me that he does not believe in it. He got more and more sort of outrageous on the right as FDR seemed to him to be moving too much toward the left. But FDR, of course, was in a very hard space because of pressure on the left from people like Huey Long. And Huey Long is a great character in American history and a great character for this moment because he was a populist really on the left. And he kept talking about sharing our wealth and making sure everybody had a chicken in every pot and everybody had a chance at a job. And he was going to sort of skim the the profits of the country off and return them to the little people in, for example, his home state of Louisiana. You know, he's my actually my nominee, Norm, for the person who in disposition seems most Trump-like. You know, every man a king, every he'd sing yeah. that song in the Senate floor. Every man a king, every man a king, for you can be a millionaire. But there's something belonging to others. There's enough for all people to share. When it's Sunday, June, and December, too, or in the winter time or spring, there'll be peace without end, every neighbor a friend, with every man a king. He was great with a slogan, what's America, make America great again. He said that essentially in a variety of ways, you know, and always there's the question of his deep and profound corruption. But, you know, he had real appeal as a Trump-like character. He did not become president. But, you know, a few twists and turns along the way, he might have been. Well, and it shows, you know, it just underscores the fragility of the society. Um, I think the difference now, Heather, is the depth and breadth and instantaneity of social media and these tribal media that makes it harder to deal with. But having said that, one of the words we use a lot in this book... But more let me point something out. You know, the media, look, we've lived it our whole life, most of the unidirectional mainstream media, you and I both. You know, the media is a marketplace. If you tap something that is deep in their desire... As we've talked about, the the need for a leader so I can sleep at night, I can feel I'm a part of something larger than my tribal identity. Look, I'm hopeful that there would be a marketplace for that, even with the deep divisions institutionally of the tribal media, as you claim. Well, what we are seeing, after I think a pretty abysmal performance during the campaign, many of those in what we view as the mainstream media stepping up with great courage But we use the word empathy a lot, and I think it gets back to what Heather was talking about and what you were talking about as well, Ron. All these people who are feeling not just oppressed, but feeling like they've been talked down to and ignored. And we have to separate it. This is a difficult thing to do. We do have a core 
of evil people out there. We have a core of people who are racist and anti-Semitic. They have to be condemned for that. But a lot of others who voted for Trump, we have to view them in a different way. We have to view them as those who have real stresses in their lives, who have reasons for being pessimistic about their own futures and those of their families. We have to convince them that this country has to work together as one. And that's what the new patriotism has to be. And it has to come, I think, from grassroots and from civil society, from religious entities, from public media. Uh, that can help to recreate a public square, uh, as you are uh, doing with a kind of dialogue. It has to come from changes in the corporate sector and leaders that we have there. And if if people are jolted enough into seeing that this really is a threat to what this country can be and has been, then we can get a renewal. But it's not coming easy. Well, you know, I think it's a purpose of this show. And much of your writing, Norm, I think Heather's too, certainly some of the things I've tried to do, uh, is to try to shine light into that deepening trench so that at some point people uh, can find their way out. Well, they can do that by reading and buying <laughs> One Nation After Trump. <laughs> uh, that would be Norm's new book. The movie will be out in the fall. Uh, Norm will be played by, who, who's, who's going, uh, Ben Stiller? Uh, I take that. that. Uh, Stiller or Gosling as Norm. Norm, it's a joy to have you on the show. Uh, Deep thanks for joining us. Hopefully we will talk to you again. Take care. You bet. Bye-bye. Heather, a joy as always. It's always fun to chat, Ron. I'm Ron Suskind. This is Freak Out and Carry On. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FreakOutCarryOn. Visit our website at WBUR.org slash FreakOut. Our email address is FreakOutAndCarryOn at WBUR.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.